Welcome back to Label, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. Now, August Burns Red is a creation born of our scene, and by all accounts have been one of the most, if not the most, successful outputs of the whole culture. August Burns Red has sold over a million records in North America alone, largely in the time of streaming, has two Grammy nominations, played over 2,000 shows in 45 countries, and had no member changes in the last 18 years. They've generated tens of millions of dollars in global economic activity that simply wouldn't have existed otherwise, and all of that as a DIY-style small group outfit. To me, it's just astonishing to see what can come out of a very small group of people with shared interests that begin by goofing off together and then making steady progress over many years, refining their machine and discovering their purpose, which August Burns Red certainly has. And I think the groundwork laid by the first and second generation bands was dirty and often dangerous to navigate personally and professionally. But August Burns Red was just the right individuals that came at just the right time uh, and were able to avoid the common traps and failure modes and gatekeepers by always focusing on the task at hand. And they've been able to take our culture's values and aesthetics much farther and wider than any of us or they could have ever imagined. The band has been self-managed by Brent and JB. Huge props to Brent and the whole band. But on this episode, I just wanted to focus on JB. I've learned a lot from him over time and I plan to continue to do so as I expect them to continue to innovate and deliver at an incredibly high level through the big changes coming in the terrain ahead. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with me and JB. By all measures, August Burns Red is a legendary band and a powerful band, and in a lot of ways, they're the, a top performing band out of our whole culture. And there's some pinnacle amount to the degree with which you guys have been able to achieve. You've had a really good, consistent, and powerful run, and the way that your mind works and your mindset is a big part of that, and then the whole ABR culture working as a team and a microculture. Um, that's my observation just right off the bat, what I've seen over the years. So that's what I'm interested in, but to get into it let's just jump right into a time and a place i was looking at the facebook comments today on the post there and somebody said they saw you at 2006 cornerstone so let's just put our minds there it's 2006 you're at cornerstone they said that when they saw you they knew you were going to blow up they knew it was this is a done deal this band's going to be huge did you know that then what was your what was that day take me back I definitely didn't know that we were going to quote-unquote blow up or be huge in 2006 at Cornerstone. Um, I do remember it. We played the tent stage um, on Tooth and Nail Day, and we had a great crowd. It was probably one of the biggest shows we'd ever played up, up at that point. It probably was the biggest show we played at that point in our career. We hadn't done much as, uh, as far as festivals have gone, and... You know, that I don't know how big that tent is in retrospect. Like, it's been a long time since I've seen those tents, but at the time it felt big. I mean, I feel like they probably held 2,000 people. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, it's in my mind, it seems bigger, but certainly not 5,000. I mean, you know, your mind no. can tell you it was, but it's certainly not. It's probably 2,000 is yeah. a great guess. It could be a little north of that. 
like with that, yeah. you know, depending on how people crowd and on the outside and stuff. We played early in the day and I remember the crowd being great. We had a, a great response. I think we played pretty well uh, as far as I remember. Um, and one of the, one of the takeaways I have from that show is, is how much merch we sold. Cause there was like a pretty steady line at our merch table, which was exciting for us at the time. And we had this awful shirt that said it had roses across like the chest up here. And then it said, August burns red down the side in a script, you know, and side print shirts were all the rage. <laughs> so we were selling a lot of those and we were really impressed that we were selling so much merch at that show. Um, do you remember how much it was? Oh, I don't remember the total, to be honest with you. I'm sure it wasn't more than 2000 bucks. Like it wasn't anything crazy. I don't think, but the shirts were also probably 10 or $12 a piece. Mm -hmm. So it takes a long time to add up at that price point. It's crazy thinking back on the merch prices, man. We were just mm -hmm. thinking about that on this tour. feel real guilty if somebody made you sell it for 15. Yeah. Project 86 made us price match with them in 2006. It would have been later in the year after that cornerstone show at 15. And we were like, what the heck? We were all pissed about it. Yeah, it felt so bad when you were the opening band and the headliner would make you price right. at 20. And you felt like this is so wrong. It's so wrong. This is too expensive. <laughs> and then wild. your fans yeah. are mad at you and tell you tell say you're a sellout or whatever for doing it. But <laughs> honestly, they probably don't even care. Like, I don't remember even anyone saying boo about it. Like, they're just like, okay, that's what the shirts cost. Like, <laughs> But that's part of the mindset that's really key. I'm glad we're talking about this. First of all, it's really funny to understand that to, to this day how the t-shirts go what is the style how they're priced is still probably how you make the most money in the world <laughs> it's still it's still uh, it's still <laughs> everything it's that's still the most important huge, thing <laughs> it's a huge part of it yeah it's like I, I feel like half of our tour revenue comes from merch like at this point maybe more at the end of the day i don't know it's it's definitely like the it's at least half the business is merchandising which is wild because we spend so much time and effort writing the music and practicing it and performing the show. And at the end of the day, it's like, cool. Hopefully the fans buy our merch because that's, that's all you, that's it. That's it. That's, that's paying the mortgage. That is yeah. the business model. You know, it's traveling t-shirt salesman, designers, brand stuff is the monetization right. of the art form that you do. But let's start, let's keep going on that cornerstone experience. What else do you remember about yeah. it? Yeah. Well, can I talk about something unrelated to the August Burns Red set that day. I don't know if that I, we had talked about, you know, some, some of my favorite tooth and nail moments. One of my favorite all time memories of anything tooth and nail related was from that 2006 cornerstone. Um, Me without you was closing the 10th stage and they opened with the song, son of a widow. It was completely dark except for one little red light on the stage. And Aaron came out and just started playing that song by himself. And it was so sick. Like it, it makes me, it's like making my voice quiver right now. Like it was like just a really moving moment. And they're one of my all time favorite bands as everyone on this podcast says. But <laughs> um, I just remember the whole crowd just being completely captivated. It was just this completely surreal experience that I think about still. Like that was just, and I've seen me without you probably 20 times. And that was for me, like the most special coolest experience was that special because uh, he came out and did an intimate it was like the personal like the, the hype and energy of that so high and then you came out with the smallest you know yes of. that was yes it was so cool everyone was so pumped and you know they had like a it could be a pretty intense show like you yeah. thought you gets pretty intense and they came out completely subdued and just with like i mean a, a great song but just like not what people were expecting and it was just like 
whoa, like all the focus was band, there. Though. Yes, they can. Yeah. They can do whatever they want. Like this band can do whatever they want, and we are just captivated. We are yeah. captive listeners. Y- yes. So yeah, that was really that was that was my that's probably like my all time favorite like live moment involving any tooth and nail artist. That's amazing because, you know, that's the same stage and moment closing in that tent with that audience that, you know, a couple of years before it's Zayo and Dan dumps blood on his head and they come out with the most loudest, craziest thing. And that's appropriate right. too in that moment. It's like that's yeah. the range that we have right. in that tent. It's really amazing. Like what has the moments happened there and shared in, the, in that tent figuratively? Big, big range, really powerful stuff. It makes your voice quiver. I mean, you can feel it when you talk about it. If you try to paint that sense memory experience, you almost start feeling it again. That's the imprint. That yeah. is, is wild. And I do miss those days, man. Those were like super carefree days. Like we weren't worried about our career. We weren't worried about dollars and cents. It was just like, the, it was all about passion at that mm-hmm. point. We had one record out. We were just like happy to be a part of it. Like excited to be there, you know? Mm-hmm. That those were special days, driving ourselves around in the van and trailer, you know, sleeping sleeping in the van, mm-hmm. that that whole thing, you know, it's very different. Do you remember feeling like you had real fans at that point, and did you have visions of where your career might go from there? I certainly remember feeling like people knew who we were. Um, our record would have been out for eight months, about at that point, and that was like our. If there was a crowd that was going to know us, it was going to be Cornerstone. I mean, on Tooth and Nail Day, of course. Like there, mm-hmm. th- those that was like the built-in fan base. That was the advantage of being a band that's signed to Tooth and Nail Solid State. Like you had that core audience who was just immediately going to check you out and embrace you. And we definitely felt that and had that luxury of of being an artist on the label. So yeah, people knew our songs and people went off. The crowd was great. The reception was great. I feel like we, the show was intense and we talked to a ton of people afterwards and, you know, everyone was giving us high praise and, you know, all that, that felt really good. It was, it was, I don't think it was like our coming out. I don't think that we had like arrived at that point. There was something to build on. Something was, you know, starting to, to brew a little bit. Uh, this is an interesting point too, that I remember after that show that we confirmed Jake, our singer, Jake Lores, that he was like in the band because he had been like touring with us since the end of I'd say early February, 2006, but we had never like officially made him a member. And it was after that show at Cornerstone 2006, that we're like, cool, man. Yeah. You're in the band. So that was like a big moment for us. That's good. That's a cool one to identify. Um, And you had been to Cornerstone before? I had not. I know our drummer, Matt Greiner had been as a fan. Um, Our merch guy, Kip, Kip Andrew, who's been with us forever. He used to go out with with friends, um, from whom I, I never made the, the trip mm-hmm. personally. That was my first time, first first experience. But you guys did come from a background of being, you know, it seems like tooth and nail kids from my, my understanding in general, or, or some mix of that. How does that fit in for you guys? Matt Greiner, a drummer, certainly came from that background. Um, he had, you know, stricter parents who didn't want him listening to secular music. So he was able to find that subculture in tooth and nail and solid state that he wasn't being permitted to listen to from just his parents standpoint. And, you know, we all kind of, I grew up in a Christian household as well and had 
I know what my parents would have wanted me to listen to, but they weren't like policing my CD collection or anything at that point. And I was listening to a lot of punk stuff. I, I came out more as like a fat records kind of guy than like a tooth and nail kind of guy. But as I got more into hardcore and metal and stuff, you know, I, I was a stretch Armstrong fan and I loved Norma Jean and I loved under oath. And there's a lot of bands. I love me without you. As I said earlier, there's a lot of bands from tooth and nail solid state that I was a big fan of. I just didn't start there. You know, Mm -hmm. I got there. And so that was when, how old were you then when you are a under oath fan and your band is getting going, for instance, I was an under oath fan on chasing safety and, and I like changing of times as well. And I even listened to like Christ of the past. Like I, I, I liked under oath for sure. Um, chasing safety was definitely my favorite under oath record. That was the one that I was like, this record's awesome. And I remember seeing them on warp tour in 2004. Um, August Burns red didn't play, but we went there with a box of CDs and a little Walkman or a Discman with headphones and went around like trying to get people to awesome. listen to our, our EP and, and trying to sell those. And I, and I saw under Earth play, they were blowing up at the time. They weren't a main stage band, but they should have been, there was bananas like watching them play. Everyone was super excited for them. I saw, I saw the warp tour in Hershey, Pennsylvania that year. I don't, it hasn't, it stopped going there many years ago, but that was like right in our backyard, probably like 25 minutes from where I grew up. And that's the time when you're putting together your first album and trying to be a, a real band. Yeah, we had put together an EP called Looks Browser After All that was released on a label called CI Records, which is a local label. And it sounds like a different band. It was a different singer. And we were pretty terrible at our instruments. And we recorded five crappy songs in a couple of days. And a local label was kind enough to get behind it and release it. So it was, I guess, a building block, but I'm not proud of those songs. And uh, I, I wasn't proud of those songs as soon as we had written Thrill Seeker. Like we made a big jump in quality from what we had done, but it was, it was a starting point and it, you know, put us on our first DIY tour. You know, we, we did a, a crappy tour around it that I booked myself back in summer of 2004. We called it the tour de Corps 2004. <laughs> so that's something fascinating about you that stays across time as well is this um, theme where you do it yourself, but you do it right. Like all the other people before, yeah, there's always the DIY stuff with Billy Power booking up VFW Hall and, and people just figuring stuff out. And, it, you know, there's a lot of uh, traps and roadblocks and casualties and bad things that happen when people are trying to do stuff themselves when it hasn't been kind of worked out um, but a lot of people had have done a lot of DIY stuff but you got in with that mindset early and then you know you pretty much do the business and booking and management and all those things the same day it's the same philosophy you've been able to hold across time in some way does that sound right yeah for sure I've always been extremely hands-on and all and it comes down to me being I think a bit of a control freak but I also came from the, like the punk rock DIY ethics um, and even hardcore. Like I feel like hardcore shares those same values as far as just doing things yourself. And obviously we've had a lot of help along the, along the way. Um, but I've never been able to like let go of the reins. I've always been extremely involved in every facet of the band and to a fault, probably honestly, like it's like a bit of an obsession for me. So there's been sacrifices along the way is just based on how intensely I care and focus on August Burns Red and, and our, 
our band and our business and the whole, the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. So there's art, guitar playing, business, and then just the navigations and, you know, the, your whole, uh, the social world of, of ABR and its team. Are all those one thing to you or do you have to do some just because you have to and the others you care about? Yeah. Every aspect's important. I enjoy certain aspects more than others. I really enjoy writing and the creation of the music and I enjoy the merchandising side. I think that's like fun and exciting and just the number crunching and all that stuff. My least favorite part of, of the whole managing the the band is probably the social aspect. Like social media is a bit of a chore for me. It's very time consuming. I don't particularly like creating content. I don't like making videos if, unless I, I like making them organically. But when we have to like set out to like make something, I'm like, Ugh. like I, I've never enjoyed that aspect. And I find that like trying to keep up with social media and staying relevant is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it's not my favorite part of, of being in a band, but it's very important. So yeah. I, I, I get it. It's well, it's interesting because there's a lot of bands that are really successful. Part of what makes them successful is they have a, let's say front man who really likes social media. It takes a lot of headspace. That's very different from the abstract thinking needed to visualize your finances and how it works with a tour across nine month mm-hmm. period and keep up revenues. I mean, very different headspace. Yeah. And it's like just trying to find that balance of like how important do we need to be focusing on the social side of things versus focusing on like practicing and writing and all those things because they they all take a lot of time and you just kind of run you, you can run out of time. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. And then trying to keep up with like the algorithms changing on social media. Like that's the worst, dude. I I hate that. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, don't use this, these kind of words and phrases in your posts anymore because they won't get sent to anybody's feed like that. Trying to keep up with the constant changing of how to keep exposure on your pages and making sure you get the the biggest reach that, that that's not, that's just not fun to me. And fortunately, you know, Brent are the guitar player, co-manages the band with me and he he focuses more on the social side of stuff than than i do like he's for sure more like making posts than i am which i appreciate because like i said it's it's not my favorite aspect of of what we do well you guys hit right at this time you know around 2005 and 6 when it started to make sense and get on your feet and uh i don't know if you had a moment where you feel like you did arrive or what that moment was but at this time the wave of the scene is reaching its crest and all of the new modern technologies that we mostly use today were in place. And you have been developing this professional mindset, which maybe comes from, I mean, it might be a stretch to say it comes from the farms of Pennsylvania, this conservative almost mindset that I remember you being in vans saying, we're not going to buses no matter what your early guys to buy houses and invest money, all that stuff. Right at the time when things were really possible, the technology's in place, and the scene is kind of cresting. So was there a moment that you kind of did arrive and uh, understand that that was the territory you were in? I feel like we felt we had arrived when, ironically, we were at Cornerstone the next year in 2007, and we had just gotten our first week numbers for Messengers, our second record. And our A and R John Dunn was there, 
He's like, hey guys, wanted to let you know that your album debuted at number 81 on the Billboard Top 200. And you're like, what? Like we had no expectations whatsoever as far as charting. And that was to us like an incredible number because we had no, we had no idea what, what you know, I, I don't even remember exactly how many units we did. I think we did like 7,000 units in the first week or something, which was almost quadruple what we did with Thrill Seeker. So it's a significant increase. And there was a lot of buzz around the band. We got to play a couple shows at Cornerstone that year. You know, we had like our tooth and nail day slot. And then we had like a, a regular tent stage slot. I even think we got to jump on the main stage that year and play in place of mailing in the Sons of Disaster because they couldn't play for some reason. So we got to open the main stage one of the days. So we were busy at Cornerstone. And it felt like there was a, a lot of buzz behind us at that point. And then that whole Messenger's album cycle was like putting us on the map, taking us to a lot of new places, getting us into a, in front of a lot of people on some some big support tours, took us to Europe for the first time. That's when things started getting a lot more serious. The business became, it was becoming more important. Um, and it wasn't just like, it wasn't all fun and games and just passion. There was there's a lot more to think about at that point. I don't remember the years, but I just know that we've played shows and toured with you at even spaces across time. So it's all one fluid thing to me. But uh, the next phase I recall of that is you, you guys are probably the 250 day a year travel thing. Very, very van centric, very yeah. fi financial centric. You know, you're doing it such a different way than the culture of the time. Do you remember the culture of the time being more party and high life for everybody else? It's like they were, they were at the peak of the scene when it was the easiest it could ever yeah. be with the most, you know, lavish possibilities and partying or whatever it's going to be. That was the time. And y'all were in contrast to that. Well, yeah. And we, we definitely saw bands living fast out on the road. Um, but we, like you said, we were kind of just like put our heads down and grind and get through and make it happen. You know, $5 a day per DMs to eat and, you know, just saving every penny we could. I, this is a move I loved for saving money when we were, when we were driving ourselves in the van, you know, you had the overnight drive, but you would get into the hotel at like 6am and you could like kind of coerce the front desk to let you check in early. And then after the show, you could use the same room again, um, because you had already checked in, so you kind of got like the two for one, which I I love that mm -hmm. move. That was like it's a, a good move, but you got to live that red eye lifestyle, though. <laughs> I know, uh, yeah. And driving overnight was brutal. After you know, you play the show, you're super sweaty. You just roll, get in the van, and then like if you're the unlucky driving team, like we split up into driving teams. So there, you know, we had pairs. There's always supposed to be a driver and a navigator who stayed up together at night. And you had a well-regimented system, and that would help you save. And I'm not kidding. Uh, those rooms would have been $49 that you were not having to get two of, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were cheap. We were right. staying at Days Inn and Super 8. And yeah. I remember when we stepped it up, like our step-up hotel was La Quinta. We were like, yeah. oh, La Quinta's yeah. pretty sweet. Like, yeah. those are probably like 80 bucks a night, you know? Mm -hmm. They were cheap. But when you're making $100 a show or $250 a night, like, our, our guarantees were still low. We were We were buzzing, but we had no headline numbers to support us getting paid more and we were just excited to be getting one great support tours with big bands that were you know selling a thousand tickets so we could play in front of lots of people we were at that sweet spot where we didn't have we hadn't done the business ourselves so we weren't commanding a high guarantee to play 
So we were attractive for bigger bands to bring onto the package because we were cheap and we would draw. So it's like once you start getting those headline tours where you do good business, like it becomes difficult for you to support because bands don't want to pay you what you're worth to come out and support. Because when building a, a package, sure, you want all these great names, but you got you got to pay for what's for, for names that are established. That's why it's nice to when you're the the baby band, quote unquote, you can you can kind of get on whatever you want because you haven't, you haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. You're still cheap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then you'll have a long stint as a headliner across a a long period of time, but that's kind of how you can build to, to that, which is what was happening all, you know, along. So there was this lever going where you were really investing heavily and staying focused and hadn't let out the clutch and to go to the gear where you actually collect the money or become the headliner and stuff like that. That's a terrific overview. And you already gave us the one me without you moment. I told JB to his favorite three doesn't have to be three songs because a lot of times people like to do albums but sometimes people just have these moments in tooth and nail history or the scenes history that that work like that one from uh cornerstone with the me without you so i think we could will have been able to find that audio clip and actually use that which is great so if you have a couple of more now that we're grounded in the universe do you have other albums moments or songs what are the other two i do um i actually have all moments this time nice I don't know. I was just racking my brain and I, I feel like the moments are, they're special. And I want to share them. So another really cool tooth and nail moment for me was at Purple Door Festival in 2007. Um, Purple Door is in Lewisbury, PA. It takes place on a, like a ski resort, like off season. So um, I'm sure you've been there many times, Matt, mm-hmm. over the years, but we, we played that day on the HM stage, HM magazine stage. We were earlier in the day and Norma Jean closed that day. And I remember watching them from out in the crowd and they were playing Memphis will be laid to waste, which is, you know, such a incredible song and just like a legendary song in itself. And me without you was playing later in that day on the main stage. And Aaron came out and sang his part from that song at the end of the show, which I'd never seen them do before. And it was another one of those moments that was just like seeing the crowd and being a part of that while just all that energy, like it was one of those like moments that just like made my eyes water, you know, like it, it was like moving. Um, just such a powerful moment that I'll never forget. And I haven't. it's another one of those things I just think about. And I saw Aaron after the, after the show, I, I went backstage um, it was, and saw Aaron standing back there. I was like, Hey man, like that was awesome. Um, my name's JV. I play in this band called August Burns Redder on solid state. I could tell he had no idea who yeah. I was or, or what August Burns Redder was. He's just like, he's like, nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, like you got the polite. exact standard treatment of any, anybody else yeah. in the world. Right. I know. <laughs> which is totally cool i mean i he he didn't know me and he still doesn't know me it's fine i, I don't i don't have a relationship well with he, him, he also I, has that, an ethic that, that that seeks to treat everybody the same regardless of who they are you know what i mean like he does his right, best to, right. to not treat people differently in that situation anyway so totally i thought that was that was funny i've seen that moment before and i can't remember what festival what year but i've seen that 
event that you're talking about happen is crazy to get that stack because of course it sounds good of course it's a good performance of course that's true to that recording but the meaning stack of the audience knowing both and feeling like you're watching that happen at the same it feels like you're watching two shows at once in some way like you have the whole me without you the whole aaron weiss plus this whole you know norma jean thing um and another wrinkle on that that i've seen more than once is it when Corey is Norma Jean and they do that song and Josh Scoggin is in attendance and will guest on it. Mm. I've seen that at least once yes. or twice also, which is he and then Josh Scoggin comes up and does the Aaron Weiss. <laughs> it's really amazing. Right. So it's it's good stuff. Yeah, that's so sweet. I love I love all those scenarios. I think I've seen Scoggin come out and do that song with him as well. I can't remember where either, but mm. um so do you want my third my third moment? Yeah, yeah, dude. Those are two great ones so far. Both have to do with Aaron Weiss. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought about that, and, I, and I, I have a lot of me without you memories, but I'll, I'll steer clear of that for my third one. Um, this is a moment from the Young Bloods two tour. This is more of a tour story that I remember that I that's really funny and special um, to me. We were we were out on tours in 2006 with the Chariot, who were headlining the Young Bloods two tour. I think it was the Chariot us. Destroy the Runner, Inhale, Exhale, and I can't remember the opening band's name now. Something like with a shotgun or a Valentine or it, like I want to say Bolt for my Valentine, but it wasn't that. It was like a band that kind of sounded like that name. I forget their name now. There's a solid state band, obviously. It doesn't matter. Um, we had just played the Roseville Underground in Roseville, California. I don't know if you remember that venue, Matt. I do. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it was cool. And after the show, Josh Scoggin thought it would be fun for everyone who wanted to, to participate in the gallon milk challenge where, you know, you try to drink a gallon of milk as fast as possible, (laughs) which is, you know, you will throw up. There's no way to do it without throwing up. So a bunch of us got all this milk. We all got a gallon of milk and just started chugging milk out back in the parking lot at Roseville underground. And People, everyone's getting sick and just throwing up everywhere. And it was disgusting, but hilarious. And our tour manager was one of the first person, first people to actually get the whole gallon down. Like he would like just chug, 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 and then just throw it all up immediately. And then just go right back to chugging. Like it was so gross, but we were just laughing. It was so funny. And I think Josh didn't even participate. Like I think he rallied everyone to do it, but didn't even try it himself. Unethical. He said so, that's unethical. <laughs> but it was it was a fun. That's a fun memory. I don't know if that counts. Well, there's but, no music uh, that I can play from that. And if there was, I wouldn't want to play it. No audio. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. But, sorry. So maybe give it, me another favorite song off of a record or something. What's up? What do you? What what recording do you love in the catalog? Mm, I'm I'm a really big fan of. I said this earlier, but of um, chasing safety. I mean, that's like one of my favorite records from that era. And I think it still holds up like it's still probably my favorite Under Earth record. And that's, you know, the, the, the drowning in my sleep drop. I remember seeing that live so many times throughout the years and that just being like such a, a sick, like epic moment in an Under Earth set from like a really incredible song. So we'll we'll say that one. You can play that. That's a good one. Yeah. And they should have just called the song Drowning in My Sleep. It would have been easier for everybody. Yeah. What is it called? 
Uh, I don't know. Is it Boy Brush Red or something? Is that that one or is it different? I don't know. Names don't. <laughs> I don't. Song that. names is not a something I do. Like I do not know Emory's song yeah. names. I don't know. I mean, really, song names are so. I, be, I bet you don't know your song names. I bet you. But there's so. I, don't know, I bet man. I could. I bet. Well, you might. But I bet you could I put do. a lot of people. Um, uh, I bet you could ask a lot of band members play a song and say, "What's the title of this song?" Because a lot of them are incongruent. It's not like the. You know, right. the, the style of naming songs that has occurred over the last couple of decades is kind of, there's this obscurity factor to it, where it's not this, it is as easy as normal pop has always been. It's been one of those areas where people have liked to name stuff in these ways that aren't that easy to recall from actually thinking about the song musically. So I certainly sure. have that problem, and I think a lot of musicians do. If you play a clip of their song, say, what's the title of this? Track eight off your fourth album, whatever, they might struggle to recall the name quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there's some that I would struggle with. That is true. There's a lot of songs to remember. Yeah, I'm going to make that into a game and do it for people and just prove it because I know they won't. I know I'm, the people in my band don't know the names of our songs. I know that because we Dude, <laughs> I just know we don't. I did, a, I did an, an interview with Jake uh, years ago in, in the UK where we had to name as many August Burns Red songs as we could in 60 seconds. Like it was a contest to so see who can name the most. And it was hard to just hard. like, because I would just pick an album and try to go through the track listing to like rattle off quick, but definitely got stumped doing that yeah uh that's great though so at that point we're still in timeline there where you're doing that young bloods tour uh so at at that point you said and you're talking about your crew guys and i wanted to ask about crew so what's been your yeah. philosophy for crew and the way you've interacted with them and their importance and how how you've managed to do that because your crew and team is really just completely key to your success and has been an integrated one that you've kept close instead of distributed these other, you know, how have you looked at the crew? Well, our crew is our family and we spend so much time together when we're out on the road that it's really important that we have the bond. It can't just be these people that can come in and out. Like we like to keep it consistent because if you're not jiving off stage, the band and the crew, it's, it's just going to be uncomfortable towards going to be less fun. You're not going to, the show is not going to be as good. People aren't going to work as well together. So we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of the same crew guys for a really long time. Um, in the early days, our crew was just um, Josh Bowman, who was one of my best friends. Uh, I grew up with him, went to school with him. He was my college roommate. And he finished school. I dropped out a year early. He, he finished that, that last year of college and then immediately just joined us on the road. So he, and he's been with us ever since. So he went from basically coming out and selling merch and doing whatever, driving with us and stuff, um, to now he's our tour manager and has been our tour manager for forever since we've had a tour manager. His whole professional career is that job. What other, I mean, he's been there well, for the whole thing. I mean, I'm, I'm saying he, maybe yeah. he does other stuff, but that has sure. been his career like that he's been committed to, is tour managing ABR since yeah. we were in college together. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. He's, he's been here. He's been there every step of the way. He's like basically a, a member of the band. No one knows about mm -hmm. like off, you know, but that's really hard in, to in get. Shows. Like, I don't know if you know this, but the startups and the companies and nobody else can get good people to work, you know, for a long and yeah. keep them a lot. And for a, a, a position that, like you said, nobody knows. And he's just busting his ass for that long. How do you get him to do that? I think he likes it. I mean, he, he has to like it or he wouldn't do it. Uh -huh. He likes he likes traveling. He likes the, the lifestyle, I guess. And, you know, he takes it seriously and he cares. He cares about all of us. He cares about the band and he cares about 
putting on a good show. Like that's important to him. Like poking his head out, making sure every like he'll be like, "Hey, I thought this looked weird with the lights tonight. Like we should fix that." Like I mean, he he legitimately is invested. Invested. That's a perfect word for it. Yeah, that's great. And you've invested in him. I mean, I'm you know. I paid him well, taking care of him. Obviously, you've known how to be responsive to his needs to retain that because you've seen his value at least. I think so. I mean, if he hasn't left, I guess he must have. I mean, we we've had him on retainer between tours for years and years, so you know he gets he gets paid money off the road. Part of the family, exactly. I mean, he's my best friend, so I'm, I'd be very disappointed to lose him. The norm is you you mix those relationships, and eventually it goes bad. That's the norm. Sure. I guess we've been really lucky in that regard then. And it's not that we haven't had our, I mean, Josh and I were driving partners for years and years when we were in the van and we would get into the stupidest little fights over the dumbest stuff. I can't even think of any examples, but you know, just little, little tips like brothers, you know, and then we'd go silent for 15, 20 minutes and then all would be well again afterwards, you know, that kind of thing. Is that willingness to do the discomfort is something you can only have with, fa- I mean, you say family, college roommate, you of course share the purpose and vision, which is great, but you have the ability to have a real fight. You can do that. And that's, that seems to be a necessary part of that willingness, like the a high enough trust where you can ha- face that much discomfort and not become. Yeah, I suppose. And that was, and the fights were pretty trivial just like getting on each other's nerves, being annoying. It wasn't like we haven't had any like serious disagreements or, you know, we've never, we've never like Mm -hmm. physically fought each other or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Closest we came to that would have been in college. (laughs) But even that, then he he locked me out of the room and I was pissed. Well, Josh is a special guy and you're certainly lucky to have him. And it really makes a lot of sense in in that regard. Uh, And it's cool to see. What about when we talk about Under Oath and Me Without You and August Burns Red and the different things they do on stage or have done with their albums or way they behaved or whatever it is, what's the same about the three of your, what what does that, all of your music have in common? What's the commonality there? I think all those bands are consistent in what they release. I think there's a lot of bands who ebb and flow a lot with, I guess, changing styles and things. And of course, every band grows and evolves and stuff, but I think ABR under oath of me, I thought you have all been really consistent with both our quality of record records release, the timing at which we release records. I mean, keeping records coming out. Now, of course, under oath went away for a while. So, but at, there was a time, you know, where they were every two, three years, new record, like they, the, there was a consistency in the timing of the releases. And I think all three of those bands all have very consistent live shows, like the shows they I'd like to think we put on great, a great show. So what I am getting from that is that there's, uh, it's like they know who they are. Sure. Yes. Not trying to be something you're not. You are comfortable in the space you've carved out for yourself. And that's definitely, I can say that 100% for August Burns Red. I'm happy with the sound and our our place in metal or metalcore or whatever, wherever you want to put us. And I'm not looking to you know, defy the genre and recreate our sound and like take us in some completely new direction. Like I like the music we're writing. We, I like the music we've written and I'm, I'm very happy and excited to be mm-hmm. looked at as one of the most consistent mm-hmm. bands within, mm-hmm. you know, the metalcore genre. That means a lot to me. Like when people 
I guess one of the biggest complaints when we released the music would be like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, this is cool, but it sounds like this from that album or, you know. But then those comments kind of get swallowed up by the folks who say, like, I love August Burns Red for how consistent they are. They are true to true their to sound. The they're true to the genre. They're not trying to become a radio rock band. You knew what it was, at least since that first EP or sometime after that, it sounds like. You knew what it was and still is. It's still the same. You knew what ABR is supposed to be like and sound like, and that's not supposed to change. It is supposed to be true to the genre. I think that's a different philosophy than some other people have. Perhaps. Yeah, and of course, I like to dabble outside of the confines of metal and experiment here and there, but we always come back. And I know that we do it well, so I want to do what we do well. I don't. If we want to try something different stylistically, then let's start a side project that's not make August Burns Red a post-rock band or, you know, a, a radio rock band or something like we can do that with our time with a side project. I like leaving August Burns Red on But in some ways now, this, this approach is a deviation from an under oath or a me without you. The other approach is that you are an artist being expressive regardless of the other things like a genre or or business or fans even like some of the creators have this mindset that their identity is the creator and whatever they create is what comes out however that goes it, Josh Scoggins that way Aaron Weiss is more that way for instance yeah you make a good point in that and i don't i should i should say that no i don't, I don't mean create, that i don't mean quote that. unquote the same it's album every that. time um yeah sure i, I just want to be consistent I want to write consistently great metalcore songs. And that's always been our goal to write the best songs that we can while experimenting here and there, but always having that same core sound. Yes. And I think the strength of that, that is my favorite way to think is that you think of August Burns Red as an entity that you interface with and operate on. Like you understand it, August Burns Red is a thing and you're JB. Whereas some artists are intertwined their identity with their art mm-hmm. in a way. And that's really cool. It gives different results in a way, but your ability to operate the ABR and participate with it is a different perspective that from which you engage your thing. And that's, you know, and it is really functional. You have that perspective to really get at it and know what it is and what it's trying to do. Sure. I mean, August Burns Red is always going to be much mm-hmm. bigger than the individuals that make up the band. The band is more important than the members. It's like a blimp that you steer, you know, or operate. Right. Or whatever right. Or right. is the way I kind of picture it. <laughs> I, I like big. to go as a blimp. <laughs> it's a blimp and you're in that little bucket underneath it, you know, and you're driving. Yeah. And all the fans, sure. everybody else is like on board or whatever they are in the analogy. But you're, you know, you have a lot of influence over the big blimp that matters to a lot of people in a lot of ways. It's really cool. Yep. I like that. We want to keep it. We want to steer it the right way but we also want to we want to protect it also mm-hmm. like we're not trying to we're not trying to blow it up <laughs> and make it and yeah. make it into something different you know yo this is adam from solid state here to tell you about the new silent planet album iridescent that comes out november 12th We are pumped for this thing. It is my personal favorite Silent Planet record that they have ever released, and you can go listen to several singles from it right now. We have four of them out right now that are going to be on the record, including Anadonia, the newest one that we just put out a couple weeks ago. If you like Silent Planet, 
This thing is awesome and is going to not only not let you down, but introduce you to kind of a lot of new flavors from them. Again, it comes out November 12th. You can pre-order it still for the next week and a half, either at the Bands merch store or at our label merch store. November 12th, Iridescent, Silent Planet. They'll be touring a ton next year. Go see them when they come through and hope you love this record. So how did you guys pull off the the very unique thing about your band in the genre? You've gone from the tooth and nail and the under oath and the cornerstone in that world into the real metal world of toughness and, and, and been able to take the aesthetic from cornerstone even more like cornerstone plus flip-flops plus collared shirts and you know happy go lucky guys that can make fun videos and came from the far i mean you're not at all ever pretending to be to infuse that darkness or toughness on top of your style in a way that's just is striking in a tons of different ways but that's a mystery i think to almost everybody how do how can you come dominate this genre like this and not not really look the part or play the normal uh aesthetics of it how do you do that i guess that might have been part of the uh, maybe that's part of the allure i don't know that we didn't look the part or we weren't dressed in all black and you know wearing eyeliner i, I don't even want to like I, I don't know if that matters or not just the the aesthetic was just like we're just dudes playing music let the music speak for itself we're normal people just like you guys. We just happen to be writing this music and we're, we so happen to be on the stage playing it. That's the only difference. Uh, you know, we're just everyday average Joes. We're not trying to like, there's no gimmick, I guess. The gimmick would be my freaking flip flops, Matt. Like that's the most the gimmicky thing about our gimmick, band. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but like that's, that, <laughs> to me, that's like the most gimmicky thing we do. So it is. We're just dudes playing it. I, I remember like talking to uh, Peter from that band Winter Solstice. I don't know if you know him. Um, and he, they weren't a tooth and nail band, but we weren't on tour with them. He was doing merch for Haste the Day in 2006. And he was telling me about how he thought it was so cool that on earth, like when they got on stage, just looked like they had just come from their day job working construction, wearing their cargo shorts and their work boots and just like threw a guitar on and played. Like they were like, they kind of had a similar thing going, I think just like a, just your average Joe throwing on a guitar and, and going and playing music. And that's, that was always sort of our, our thing. Like it wasn't about our image. It was about the music. But it becomes an image either way that you can't avoid, but at least it's real. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, you do wear flip-flops and it turns out to be a gimmick. I mean, you know, right. that just happens, <laughs> but it's real. Like you couldn't make that up. Like the managers and agents and Hollywood people can't tell you to do it. it wouldn't work. It has to be yeah. real to pull that kind of thing off, you know, but I almost think it is a punk rock. Like there's a, there's a real F you built into it that we're not, we're going to come in here and outplay and outperform and out hustle and outwork these other bands who are think they're the most tough or this, that, whatever. But I think they probably are thinking about image in some way that we're not even going to put effort into because we're going to maximize our efforts elsewhere and and yeah. then it's like almost like a 
uh, a power move to say, look, I'm going to, for Brent to stand there and look like a frat boy that you know that the metal people probably don't <laughs> like and they love it and he's dominating and it's awesome. And I don't mean, you know, I'm not disrespecting Brent there. That's like, of wow. So. Like you can sit there and wear that collared shirt and, and glasses and the way people, you know, people don't even like. There's some of these people have negative views about frat boys and stuff, and I'm not saying uh-huh. he's a frat boy, but and just own that, and it, it's so undeniably real. And you deliver the music, and you put the butts in the seats, and it's, and it's these kids, Christian kids, and it's not that you're Christian kids, but you come out of whatever it is, it's like oh, undeniable, yeah, and then that's powerful. <laughs> Thank you. I yeah, I don't know. It's just. The, the image side of the band was never something we focused on. That was always an afterthought. But yet people will now talk about your flip flops and the, what you, you know, that, you know, and your guitar and the way it looks matters to a lot of people. It's a real Ibanez mega signature thing that sells a ton. I mean, it's a high quality commercial product for Ibanez, what you create yeah. and hold as an image, like your image is that guitar. And it just right. is your personality. And it's a big signature guitar in the world of guitar. Isn't that crazy? I don't know how we got there. No, I, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I mean, it's authentic, it authentic is, is for sure it. But like for that guitar, how do you explain that? You just like it and you never need to change and you just know what you like. And there it is. And it's consistent. Like, how's that same yeah. thing? Dude, I guitar for me, I never, I've never been like a, like the guitars are cool. Sure. But like, it's always I've always been more interested in the like the pedals and the other stuff that makes the sounds like the guitar is just kind of like you have to have one and I found one I liked and I just embraced it and that's what I've been playing forever so like you know my my green guitar that you're talking about with the white stripes I got in 2009 put I put the white stripes on in 2011 on Warp Tour um just with tape it was just electrical tape and it just kind of became my thing it wasn't supposed to be a thing. It was just like, Oh, this is cool. Like I was just joking around with our guitar tech, Kevin. And I guess they caught one enough for people to recognize it. And Ivan has to embrace it as a signature model. So yeah, that, I mean, that just all happened by accident. There was nothing premeditated about any of that. Is there something, anything special about the guitars design other than the cosmetics? Well, it's an RGA, which is, uh, Ivan has like flagship products, the RG, but the RGA has an arch top. So, um, there's a curve to the top of it. Um, and they don't make a lot of RGA guitars at this point, especially with a fixed bridge, which my guitar has, it's kind of a product that they aren't making anymore. And it's a product that I think a lot of people liked or still like. So for that reason, I think there's still a lot of interest in that guitar because it's not really something easily found in the new product lines that Ivan has been putting out. I've always been the kind of guy who wants to play a fixed bridge because if I'm up on stage banging my head really hard and rocking out and throwing my guitar around, I had a tendency of pushing on, you know, the floating tremolo bridge and bending my strings by accident, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, so early on, I learned that that wasn't going to work for me on stage. Like I'm, and I guess if I practice with it, sure, I guess I could figure that out, but I don't want to have to be that in control. I want to be able to just do what I feel when I'm up there and not have to worry about pushing too hard on the bridge while I'm chugging a breakdown and such that I'm bending the, the notes, you know, flat. So I've always been attracted to a fixed bridge guitar. And a lot of the stuff Ivanez makes is, you know, with the Floyd Rose or floating tremolo. And, you know, I guess we're kind of getting into more technical 
No, that's all right. People love that. I'm about to ask you about your pedal board next while we're here. Just keep on talking, <laughs> and we'll move on after that. Just tell sure. I'm curious, people want to know your philosophy and approach while we're here. So let's do it. Um, my pedal board's not what it used to be. I used to have a really elaborate rig that I won't even get into, but I I've simplified considerably. I'm now playing an XFX three, and which is a digital amp modeler, and it has all the effects and stuff built into it, and then it has a foot controller that you know works over it's, it's basically like a midi foot controller where you can program each button to do whatever you want you know to change your sounds and your effects and and all that jazz and there's even a tuner built into it so my pedal board's not exciting anymore it's just an a b switch so i can quickly switch between guitars if i need to um you know switch wireless units quickly and there's you know pedal power and my my foot controller <laughs> so you moved to an all digital rig um i yeah. don't remember when that well i mean you've been on that for a long time but you've always had a yeah. lot of mix of technology in a rig including having all those pedals and the ground control thing where you're pro- programming the pedals and stuff from a rack and remote controlling it out on the floor and you know i've seen you do a yeah. bunch of different things in that realm i really enjoyed the elaborate analog rig that you controlled with like modern midi power i guess and that was really awesome. And I loved all the sounds I could get from that. And I loved collecting pedals. The problem was we were touring internationally so much, and this just was not a fly friendly Mm -hmm. rig I had. So I was forced to simplify and kind of adapt just to be able to get my, get around the world and keep my sound consistent. So, and just with how small the, the, you know, amp modeling to join modelers have gotten now, like it's, it's just really easy to throw, something in a two space rack bag and walk one to the airplane versus mm-hmm. the, the me- mega two amp rack with eight spaces of rack gear and a huge pedal board. Like that just wasn't going to work for me to travel internationally. It became too much. When you're saying that you want to just be able to be free on stage and play what you want with, for having that, you know, fixed locked bridge or whatever, what the way you play is, really really um technical and mechanical and takes a lot of work and practice and discipline and exercise just to be able to do it in what Mm -hmm. way can you do whatever you want to on stage what what is that process um what freedoms do you actually have versus like nailing some tech you know some technical thing how do you think about that performance headspace well if i'm playing something that's noodly and all over the neck and i'm playing a lot of notes and stuff sure like i'm gonna kind of have to post up and like focus on just playing but we have a lot of moments where we're just playing heavy chugging breakdowns and if i'm just chugging a breakdown like you can do whatever you want at that point it's all muscle memory and you can throw your guitar around however you want like that's when you can just let loose mm-hmm. and sure some songs i can do that a lot more on than than others and it's interesting right now I'm, we're on this 10-year anniversary tour for our album leveler and there's like a few songs in the set where i'm pretty restricted where i just kind of need to post up and and focus on the riffs and land in the notes and everything. And it's oftentimes the songs, the songs like that are the songs that normally don't get played because we can't have fun with them and have the same amount of energy as we, you know, can with, with songs that are, I don't want to say more simple, but give me a couple of examples of a post-up part and a fun to play part. Okay. I'll give some examples from our current show on the leveler tour. There's a section in the set where we play 40 nights and salt and light back to back. Those are two tracks that, I can't move a whole heck of a lot to just based on what we're playing. 
And there's another song called Pangea, which is earlier in the set. That's like probably the hardest, most guitar intensive song on the album. And we never had even performed it before. This, this tour is the first time we've ever played it live. So that's a song I just kind of had to stand there and play for, for the most part. There's not big breakdowns in it. It's just, it's really, it's more progressive and riffy and technical. Um, on the other side of things, let's see, Cutting the Ties. That's a song that I can move to a lot. There's a lot of big chord parts. There's a lot of big breakdowns. Um, that song kind of has it all and allows for us to, you know, if we want to go off and rock out real hard, there's opportunity to do that. There's there's a clean section where we can all kind of chill and vibe out a little bit. Are you writing in some for the live experience? Like in the way that you're picturing yourself on stage when you, oh, I'm going to have to do this. Oh, that'll be a nice part for this. Mm. No, generally not. When I'm writing, I just want to write the coolest, best song possible and not worry about how we're going to pull it off live. That's always been the philosophy. Live comes second. Let's get song written, get it tracked, and then we'll figure out how we're going to do it live. We'll figure out how it's going to go over live. So it's a surprise or it's pleasant to find out, oh, cool, this is a rock out part. This is going to be great. Like you get to discover how it feels, and those are the th- things you notice. Like, ah, free. You, you look forward to those things. You go, ah, this is a free part where I get to. Is that right. the part of the show you like, or do you like nailing the thing and people seeing you nail the perfect notes at whatever BPM? What is more satisfying on stage? Nailing a solo is more satisfying than banging my head for during a breakdown, for sure. Yeah, the the, okay. the general framework is definitely there. And that's um, you do a lot of tab as well. So you're ear and tab, which is yeah. interesting because there's a there's a tab. Uh, there's a technicality involved in there that's like very structured and uh, it's like computer-like, obviously. And I know you use that computer program or you used to use, which I think you do this. I th- can you share with people that arranging style you do where you write into a tech? Because it gives the structure or skeleton of or the bones of, in a binary computery way. Like the composition is like this DNA and then it gets expressed on electric guitar by you and you have to practice and learn and play it. I mean, that, it's a weird. Yeah. it's kind of a weird process. Yeah, the process is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll write a guitar riff with a guitar. I'm not writing in a computer program, but as soon as I have a riff down, I'll put it into a program called Tabit, which is a really old program. And I've been using it since I wrote Thrill Seeker, and I've just, I'm very fluent in it at this point. It's very comfortable for me. And I know how it's going to sound in Tabit, how it'll translate to when we record in the studio. Like I can listen to our MIDI tabs and be like, oh yeah, this song's going to be sick, just based on hearing, you know, the computer sounds. So I'll write a riff, put it into Tabit, and then I use Tabit to basically flush out the structure of the song and get all the parts, all the guitar parts down. And even I'll, I'll even, you know, tab out drum parts. And then this becomes the foundation that gets sent around to the rest of the band for everyone to learn their parts and to use as a template to learn, to learn the songs so that we can go take them into the studio and we reference the tabs. You know, I don't, I don't know how to play our songs when we go into the studio. Like I am literally flipping open my $200 Chromebook that I have Tabit on and that's all I use it for. And I'm like, okay, cool. Here's the next part. And I'll like look at it and, you know, learn it quick and then track it. And it's like, okay, next part. Like that's, that's how we've been tracking for years. And then it's like, okay, the album's done. Now we got to learn how to play it live. Now I got to memorize it. That's really cool.
core to what's going on, I think, at, with you guys in the way. That's really advanced. I mean, it's just really advanced because you're you're writing on the guitars organically, but with your ear. So like that's it comes from some place creatively like that. And then your first impulse is to externalize it and get it out of you into a very simple the most simplified thing it can be the tab the number the note and then that becomes the dna that you then work on directly and then you share that dna to everybody it comes back to life with people again and then goes right. where it goes that's that's i mean there couldn't be a more efficient real system but almost nobody has the the impulse or discipline to externalize so deeply so early in the process that's just really um provides a, it allows everybody to engage with the thing immediately and fully yeah. And it allows for people to learn at their own pace too. Like we don't have to sit there and go, Oh, play this chord. No, like this finger on that fret. Like you don't quite have it. Like it's, it's, it's learn at your own pace, which I, which I like, I think it's nice for everyone mm -hmm. to just not have to, it's hard to show someone how to play something when you're looking at their hands on a guitar. Like, I, I don't know if that's something, I don't know how Emery does it or if you guys like try to show each other riffs and stuff, but that's something that I've always struggled with. Even just yesterday in the green room, Dustin was showing me a rhythm guitar for a new Christmas song that we have. And I was like, what Fred are you on there, dude? Like, I can't quite see what you're playing. And it, it's, it's just easier to visually look at it. And maybe that's just something for us that works for the way we no, learn. That's real. But it's like, you have the impulse, like, could you go home, tab this for me, email it to me so I can learn it, even though we're right here in the room, <laughs> you know, it's like looking at the mirrored version of guitar and at yes. the social pressure of, do you got it? What should I tell you? Right. Do you need G sharp? Do I, is, like that is not, that's right. not helpful. So somehow that's not the best way to learn guitar. Yeah. But a lot of people learn off YouTube and I guess you can get used to, the, I mean, the, the way people learn point about it is there's infinite ways of that people can learn. And we only seem to usually sure. try the, the basic ones, but you found a whole alternative method that turns it inside out using technology. That is a kind of a game changer. Well, and it's nice because we always have these built-in references for our entire catalog. Like I, I can look up any song and be like, cool, this is how I play this. This is, it's tabbed out. It's correct. This is how you play this part. Mm -hmm. So it makes it really nice for learning older material or stuff that you forget. Like there's always that perfect cheat sheet right there. I think it's the DNA. Does that work for you? It's like the DNA of your music. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the bones. Yeah, it's the bones. It's, that's that's awesome. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Uh, I understand this process a little bit because when I asked you to do a guest on an Emory song, I said, well, here's a here's some chords. You can, will you write something? And then you, you know, you showed up the next day. Do you remember that? I did it in Tabot. I remember writing it. I was in Boise, Idaho, messing around at the, in that venue, the venue. You remember the venue in Boise? Yep. Mm -hmm. Loved playing there. Um, yeah, you sent me the... You sent me the chords and I immediately tabbed it out and tab it, the chord structure, and then I just looped it and jammed over it and then wrote down, you know, the riff that I that I wrote. And then I came up to Seattle. Everyone else went to a Seahawks game and I met you in the studio and tracked the part. Yeah. It was really, really cool for me because it's like you were in Idaho headed my way. I said, hey, you can be here tomorrow. Want to do some guitar? Because I was just in the middle of working on the record. And you said, yeah. And I sent you a thing. And then you're on the way there tabbing it out. And you get there the next day. And it's just very complicated, very j. You know, it's it's clearly not something I would have written. It's just clearly like it's a neat spot in a song where it feels this very Emory way. And then there it is. And it's you wrote a harmonized part. And then I got to play 
with you on it, which was really, yeah. I thought it was really nice for me because you already had a harmony built in that I got to learn and, uh, you know, guitar solo with you there. But, you know, it's, yeah, it and I cool. love the part. People recognize it. And it's your personality. Bam, right there. It's like, here comes JB. It's just, there he is. This is what, this That's what he nice does. That's the nice thing about collabs. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And thank you for having me on that. I, 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 remember, I remember that fondly. That's how I got exposed to the way that you're thinking about guitar, which is quite quite unique. You know, you have a different, a slightly different interface with all the normal things that other people do, but you have your own version of it somehow. Yeah, and it's just kind of what's comfortable and what's worked for us. And we are, you know, growing with recordings, demoing stuff out, and Pro Tools or Logic and things like that. But we still, we still start, you know. The foundation is still in, in tab. Do you think that you view your band as a, the closest thing that it is in totality is a, it's like a startup. Like your people call you innovative, entrepreneurial, it has a culture like a small startup and all the same kind of things fit. So it's almost like you're a startup founder. Does that, is that part of your framework at all? Sure. I mean, that makes sense. We started a business, started a band, started a brand, whatever you want to call it, and have been working for the last 18 years to take it where it is now. And we want to keep it going as long as possible. So I don't feel like we're a startup anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're a, you're a full company, but it's, it's built like a startup is. I think that the music industry classically takes you know, artist and doesn't enable them to be whole entities. Like they keep them dependent or immature in a sense, like a, not on purpose. And a lot of artists are immature, but if you can't run your whole thing yourself, then you're dependent yeah. on all these other things. And then in a sense, you artists remain immature and not fully developed so that they can, you know, modularly interface with different people and structures and things as a unit. Um, but if you're a whole, you have your whole thing as one thing that, so it can pivot and change and grow and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I think a lot of artists, generally speaking, struggle with the non-artistic side of doing music. Like right. they just don't have, they can't wrap their brain around the business side of things. And that's why people need outside managers and people to steer the ship. And I guess we have the luxury of being able to handle that internally. Like we can think as the artist and also think as the manager. And that's just uh, lucky, I guess. I don't know. Like that, that's not fairly common, it seems. And it also just becomes a lot of work. And it's amount, it's amount of, you have to ask yourself as, as a musician, do I have the mental capacity to take on the business side of this while still not sacrificing what I can create artistically. And if you can't handle both, then there's no point. And you should hire people to do the business side of things so that you can continue to create the best art that you can. I would add to that. that if you're going to hire people, you would hope that those people will help you to develop in a way that maybe you could then later handle more versus be dependent on. That's sure. that's the distinction I think that matters. You definitely need help. You definitely can't do it all, but you have to be developing it so that maybe one day you could do more or all or whatever it is to smartly decide that. Wonder how my managers out there are trying to groom their artists to be able to take over the. Oh, that's, that, that's like I feel 
They don't. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Right, is they keep right. you the way they keep you. Like that. That they they know, keep you that, helpless and dependent. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. One hundred percent. So you've been an example of how to to holistically bust through that. You know, and I'm not blaming the old school ways, but you know, there's innovators that come and find and push forward and give pe- people can follow your methods and achieve a lot without having to worry about trying to play metalcore. I mean, they could use your methods for to to start some other business that's not even music or be a different kind sure. of artist or a different kind of content creator at least. I mean, your model is one to study. I study it. I'm studying it. I need to I'm still need to know more. You know, it's it, you've been whatever you've been able to do is, is there's a lot to learn from it. Where how do you look at going forward? Is you've been able to immediately get into the streaming, do the online shows, your e-commerce is tremendous, you know, you're you're doing these things better than traditional ma- bands with teams. You're you're be in the new uh climate and what's to come. What things are you willing to do different as things change? And what things are you going to keep for the way they are? Well, I feel like you have to constantly like check the temperature and the barometer of just what's going on in the industry and adapt as things are changing. And that's something that I think August Burns Red's been pretty good at doing. You know, you mentioned like streaming and stuff. And, and you know, I know Emery's done a lot of live streaming too. It's something that both of our bands have had to embrace during the pandemic because we couldn't go out and play shows the way we might normally. And we needed to find new new revenue streams and create them basically and i feel grateful for the guys in under Oath, like kind of in my opinion pioneering that live stream aspect like they were one of the first to do it in our world i think and kind of provided us with a great model of how you can have success doing live streaming during the pandemic and we were really anti doing live streaming um, when things first shut down, like we we're like, no, we're definitely not doing that. We're going to wait it out. Tell me that, like that feeling, especially when you say it's reactive. Like, yeah, to have such a strong feeling is always interesting to me, even when it's negative. So I try sure. to like, wait. What's that energy coming from? Tell me about that. August Burns Red is not going to be able to put on the same show to you while you're sitting on your sofa in your living room, watching on your laptop or your mirroring to your television or whatever. It's just not going to be the same experience as coming to see us with the big PA and the lights and being immersed in the experience. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to taint that. That was the initial reaction. Like we don't want to taint the August Burns Red Live show. It's just not going to be as cool online. But as things progressed and we saw more people doing it and we checked out, you know, I watched those under Earth live streams and I thought they were pretty sick. And we just felt that there was interest and demand from our fans. They wanted something from us. They, they, they wanted, they knew it wasn't going to be the same as, being at the the concert in person, but it was something to hold them over until we could get back out there and play for real. And people needed stuff. We needed stuff to do. We needed things to look forward to during the pandemic, during especially in 2020. I mean, obviously we're out doing more things now in 2021, but it was a really dark time. And it August Burns Red as a band needed, we needed projects to give us purpose oh that's great that was a, that's so great that was another thing that like we got to a point where we're like dude we can't just wait for this to end like we need to figure out something to do and then we just we dove in head first and we're like we're going to do the live streams but we're going to do them we're going to do them like the biggest productions we've ever done like we're going to make them sick we're going to we're going to make them special and i'm really proud of the the three live streams we did i think they're all really sweet and i'm excited that i will have them to watch us, you know, an old man and, and show, show my they kids when, when they care. That's yeah. Right. 
So I, I'm yeah. really grateful that we changed our attitude on that and embraced, you know, that medium. That uh, you said they needed projects to give you purpose, and I just, my gosh, I can't not point that. Like that—that's your approach to the pandemic. You know, there's uh, there's a couple different approaches people take, and someone's you know, wait, hang on. Yeah, <laughs> do nothing or whatever. That's some up because you never you didn't know how long you know, but you don't know how long a tough time's ever going to be. So right, right. How 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 long when something gets tough, you have an excuse for f- for five minutes of, of like, well, this is crazy, right? And then okay, what are we going to do? So projects, right. perp. I mean, that's that's awesome. That you know, stuff comes out of that. That pays dividends in the in the long term. For sure, we found a lot of ways to stay busy. I, I can't. When I look back at what we did during the pandemic, I'm really proud of what we accomplished. We recorded a ton of music and we put on three really cool shows and we started our own e-commerce. Like we took our web store and we run it ourselves now, which was a huge undertaking itself. And we wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn how to do that and execute it had the pandemic not been a thing. Like we, it, it took so much time and learning, but now we have those skills and we can continue with that moving forward, which is a really valuable thing to do for your band. I mean, if you can not have to pay someone 20% of all your web store sales, then that's great. It is. How do you do the actual on the ground sales and shipping? We pay someone to do fulfillment, basically. Um, The same folks who print all of our tour merch fulfill our web store. We just handle the, you know, augustburnsrebmerch.com. We run the website. Brent runs the customer service. We handle all the inventory and all the back end, and then we just place orders with, you know, the fulfillment center, and they they can log into our Shopify and see the orders, and then they ship them out for us. And we pay them a fee. We pay you know a fee for the fulfillment plus the shipping costs, but we don't have to pay a percentage of. It's like a flat fee, you know. It's not a percentage mm-hmm. of all of the sales. It's much cheaper to handle. I mean, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I will admit that it's it's been a lot to take on, but it was valuable to us, especially during the pandemic when we needed to make money and sustain our families. You know. Yeah, but and to contrast that, there are many artists in the pandemic, specifically that I know that don't have any money that sold their merch whole sold their merch rights to their own merch long ago. <laughs> For Dude, advance you, on something, and they don't even get to sell that. Not much less run their web store or whatever, but literally don't even get to sell T-shirts because they needed money at some point for something. I have a crazy story I'll tell you about that. We were one of those bands that sold our merch rights years and years ago to a company called Band Merch, and we did that once as well. And then yeah. I had to buy it back. <laughs> right. Well, we we were in this position where they weren't really doing anything. Um, it was it was they didn't have the manpower for the amount of bands they had and they, their business model was failing. They gave out way too much money and weren't able to, the artists weren't able to recoup and never get out of the deals. So we had this huge advance looming over our heads. So I won't say the number, but it was, it was a lot and we were never going to recoup it. They were going to own our web store rights forever. And their company folded during the pandemic and they had a creditor come to us and be like, yo, you owe us. It was a six figure number. <laughs> we're like, Dude, we aren't making any money. We can't tour and do anything right now. I was, it was like so stressful at the time when it first happened. And we had to get our lawyer on it. And he somehow, like these people were basically looking to get anything they could out of, out of us. 
And we were able to negotiate for 10 grand. We were able to get out a deal and buy all of the web store stock that they had. And they had a ton of web store stock. And we actually were able to flip all the merch that they had on hand and like make money on it. Like we made more than 10 grand out of the, the money that was, <laughs> that was sitting there. So it worked out. It was really scary at the time. And I'm really grateful that we were able to, but now like we feel free. We aren't tied to anyone and we can do whatever we want with, with our merchandising. So you got the good end of that deal when I uh, the compare especially compared to us we sold ours to band merch at some point for some relatively small advance which was fine and they monetized it for some time but then later when we were trying to crowdfund when we went into crowdfunding we couldn't even sell t- we couldn't even do our first crowdfund and sell t-shirts right. really. so it's like shit we so first yeah. thing I had to do is call them and write them a check that I negotiated from like 12000 down to 9000 write them a $9,000 check just so that we could you know do our own crowdfund without a shakedown or whatever yes. <laughs> and that's so why that was the first hit nine grand of that crowdfund went to that but we never got the big six figure thing that you had in the first place either and I had to pay the same amount to get ours back and I didn't get the backstop uh, so coming out of the pandemic you guys have you postponed that your big tour did a stream for it but now it's going to you're doing the whole tour like you feel that you, you know you've got that tell us the dates of that and how that's looking to you as far as you know, in the new environment of doing a club tour, how's that going to be different? How do you feel about it? Okay, so we're on the we're in the middle of our leveler tour now, and we're we have eight shows left, and then we have to do a bunch of makeup shows because we can't we postponed six shows because ten of us got COVID. On the ten tour. at the same time. Same time. Wow, yes. how was that? How severe was it? Well, every single person who got it was vaccinated, so no one got it super severe. Um, there were three of us, myself, our sound guy and Josh, our tool manager who had a couple days of feeling like we had the flu, you know, we had, we had fevers, but we were all the earliest to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it felt like there might've been a little bit of waning efficacy in the vaccines as far as the severity went. And that was 10 out of how many people, like it was 10 people on the bus out of 12 or something out of 13. Yep. And the, the three folks who didn't get it had already gotten COVID. Oh, so fascinating. it's like, it, it seems like the folks who had COVID before just had better natural oh, immunity to getting it again. Yep. So now we feel good. Like, like that was an awful week. It was extremely stressful. I won't even get into like, like it, it's like COVID exploded and threw us all over America. Like the way, cause it was over like two or three days that more and more of us tested positive. So we were like dropping people off at different stops as the bus was moving. Oh, like I was sad. in Minneapolis in a hotel by myself for seven nights. Um, a couple of the people like bailed in cars because they're like, well, we're going to follow the tour, but we're going to drive in hopes that we can recover. But then I was just like, nah, everyone has it. We have to postpone these shows. We had no choice. Yeah. It was, it was a logistical nightmare. Um, but we feel good knowing that everyone's recovered and, you know, we, we, we have that natural immunity now, so we're not as freaked out about getting it, just being mm-hmm. out here. That's a good story in itself that you can spend more time on, but I know you got sound check. I heard the PA going and everything. So good luck out on your tour. It's really exciting that you've got these shows now. It's back. You've done all the uh, yet another round of thinking about your business and getting it 
sorted during the pandemic trying new things and now you're hitting it again things are gonna you know so the future you know you're you're certainly a band to watch in the future because you'll continue to you know reinvent reinvent and do what you got to do so i'll be uh we'll all be watching and we all appreciate the amount of this culture of our scene that you you guys have been able to take to <laughs> just crazy level so we all appreciate that that you're taking our our values here um our culture the stuff that this comes from so far it's awesome we appreciate you guys listening and caring and sticking with us through like a pretty long time so we're very grateful that people care 